that Luke has been bringing up for us is this <coughs> the reality of uh, the coming judgment against the nation of Israel and their rejection of Jesus. <coughs> so, in in light of that, um, in the face of that, the like what we read last week, Jesus saying to his disciples, "Don't." He's like nor have an anxious mind, you know? And uh, he says to them, don't fear, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to, to give you the kingdom. So um, in the midst of the fact that the nation uh, was in the process of rejecting their Messiah, uh, some in the nation believed, and uh, remnant, those who were called, believed, and uh, were indeed uh, rescued uh, from that uh, particular uh, judgment. Um, there's some, a similar theme running through Luke 13, one that in a couple of ways expresses to us the very heart, the care of God for his people. Uh, I, I dare say for people in general. <laughs> um, Certainly, it's expressive of God's heart for uh, those who don't believe Him. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that. Let's read uh, Luke 13. Um, the last couple of chapters have been almost 60 verses or so, so this week's only 35. Does that mean we're going to be done in half the time? Yeah, <laughs> of course not. We're two minutes for every verse. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, who would dare think such a thing? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Luke 13. <laughs> Let's read. All right. Uh, there were present at that season <clears throat> some who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans, uh, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were, were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. <laughs> Such a happy message. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can, you can cut it down. Now, He was teaching in one of the synagogues on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. Behold, there was a woman 
who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. <laughs> you imagine? <laughs> because Jesus had healed on Shabbat. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. <laughs> Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day, not on Shabbat. <laughs> the, Lord, the Lord then answered him, and said, hypocrite, <laughs> pretender, does, does not each one of you on, on Shabbat loose his ox or donkey from the stall and, and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loose from this bond on Shabbat? When he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the multitudes rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done. Then he said, what's the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Again he said, to, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's, it's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all left. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying, Toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know you, where you're from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you. Where are you, where you are from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. I'll be done. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. <laughs> Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
And assuredly I say to you, you shall, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Uh, Father, Father, would you teach us more than maybe some of the other things? Would you teach us about about your sovereign authority? About your power and your ability to do whatever it is that you want. And for us, for us to be people who lean into you, who, who lean on you, depend on you, trust in you. You are solid ground, a sure foundation. Your hands are able to fashion, to make us into whatever it is that pleases you. Lord, I, I, don't, I don't understand everything that that means. Not for me and not for everyone else. For me. But I trust that you are good. Father, show us more of yourself. Because if we leave here and we have not seen you, I don't know that it was really helpful. Speak, Lord. Speak to us through your word, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, guys. So, uh, much of what Luke is dealing with here is the rejection of the nation of Israel, of the Messiah. It's this process that's being played out. Something that God knew. It was prophesied. It was something that was going to happen. And so a lot of what we see actually happening here falls into that, that category. There are lessons that we can learn from it, I think, that are vitally important. Um, but I also want to make sure that we recognize uh, the historical context of the passage and recognize uh, that Jesus is a Jewish prophet speaking to the nation of Israel uh, in many ways, first and foremost, okay? Um, so, let's dig in. Luke 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I don't know exactly what, what that is. Uh, there are a couple of suggestions about a different situation that had occurred where uh, Pilate was wanting to take money from the temple treasury and use it to build an aqueduct. Uh, but that, uh, at least as best I could find out, was something that had occurred prior to this. Uh, and, and there were some uprisings related to it. Pilate's uh, control, Pilate's rule in uh, Israel uh, was tumultuous on a number of occasions at least according to some of the uh, historical records that actually do exist, uh, which of which there are few. Let's make sure we're clear on that. <laughs> this is a very tiny little sliver of land in the much broader uh, 
kingdom empire of Rome. Okay, tiny, tiny little sliver and kingdom uh, or, or area uh, in this much broader, larger uh, rule of Rome. So, um, whatever it was, uh, it involved Galileans. They were they would have been Jewish people living up north in Israel. That was the area of Galilee. And the middle section was Samaria, and the bottom section uh, was Judea, where Jerusalem is located. Um, but uh, there were some, as the text says, who told Jesus about this situation where uh, Pilate had mingled uh, the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. In, in the uh, particular situation I mentioned earlier, uh, the, uh, at least the, um, I guess one record that talks about it mentions um, uh, Pilate having uh, soldiers actually wear sort of plain clothes and have hidden weapons and mingle with the crowd and then uh, essentially as people were upset and rioting they then killed people while that was happening um, uh, but uh, like I mentioned there really aren't a whole lot of records even related to that event which um, it seems to have been something different than something separate but whatever this particular situation was it would have been horribly offensive Right for the blood of Galileans to be uh, mixed with the sacrifices uh, in whatever that particular phrase means uh, seems to be a very poetic uh, way of stating the situation. But regardless, verse 2 says this, And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose, they asked him about this situation with the, um, the uh, Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled. And so Jesus responds to it, says this, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things. Stop right there. That theology, that idea is still so prevalent, right? People think that if something bad happens to somebody, it means that you're cursed, or it means you're particularly cursed, or you're particularly evil, right? Or you're particularly bad, right? More than others. That's the idea. If some terrible thing happens to you, the idea that is commonly believed is that you are, in one way or another, have done something worse than other people, or you are worse than other people. But what I love here is that Jesus sort of evens the playing, the playing field. He, he just levels it all out here. This does not suggest, let me make sure we're clear on this. This passage does not suggest that there can't be particular discipline or judgment for particular sin. Oh, goodness, think of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Mm-hmm. My word, right? They, they lie about how much they sell this land for, and they try and make themselves better than they are, and they lie to Peter and the Holy Spirit, and Peter's like, sorry, guys, and they just, they just fall down dead in front of Peter. Um, so uh, this is not to suggest that there may not be some particular repercussions for our uh, sin. Uh, not only that, not only in a spiritual sense, but also let's make it clear that sometimes there are just physical things. You get drunk, you drive a car, you get in a car accident. Don't think that there's some like weird reason why that happened. It's just you made bad choices, and there are consequences for those choices, right? Uh, you sleep around with a bunch of people, and you end up with a bunch of diseases or, or other things and, and, uh, and other stuff going on. Then don't, don't wonder why that's happening, right? Like... <laughs> There are, in many ways, uh, natural consequences to our choices for many things. So, uh, regardless, a theology or a belief that uh, some particular judgment, and he's going to mention another one, or some, not judgment, some particular um, event, 
catastrophic or terrible event that occurs to suggest uh, that that is because the people involved in that were worse than others not involved in it is a problem. Think of, uh, let's say, September 11th. If someone were to come along and say that the people who, who died in the towers there or in the, uh, in the plane crash uh, in the field or in the one at the Pentagon, uh, to suggest that the people actually involved in, in that, the people who died, to suggest that they were worse sinners than, let's say, other people who escaped, other people in New York City who weren't in the towers, right, who didn't die, right, would be wrong. It would be very, very poor theology, very poor belief. Uh, yet there are some who certainly might hold to such a view. Uh, think of uh, even recently the situation in Surfside, right? The collapse of that uh, condominium tower, right? Uh, and Jesus is actually going to mention a tower collapse in the very next uh, little thing here in his illustration and what he's talking about. There, there was a, a tower in Siloam that collapsed and killed 18 people. And he's going to use that as another example to make the same point here. But Jesus is telling us very clearly that 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 theology, that belief, is not true. So if you hold to it, or you you are around someone who does, you can't outright reject it. Uh, I think also of uh, another example, um, and I, it's in uh, I think it's in John nine uh, about the man born blind that situation, it's very, it, it rings very similarly to this concept here of saying, well, some bad thing happened to you simply because you have done something bad or your parents did something bad, right? So the, the idea uh, in the, the story of the man who was born blind there that's told in John 9 is that Jesus' disciples come to him eventually and they're like, so who sinned that this guy was born blind? Do you get that? Their assumption was that the reason why he had some physical infirmity, some affliction, the reason why was because not of the general reality of of human sin, not because of the fall of Adam, but specifically because either he had sinned or because his parents had sinned, that's why he was born blind. Now the idea that he had sinned might sound strange to you, but apparently some people believe that you could have sinned while you were in the womb in some particular way. And, and then been born blind uh, because of that. Uh, I, I don't know what that might look like. But uh, <laughs> uh, regardless, um, the, this is a troubling theology in a number of ways. One of which is, think about the consequence of how this would play, how this in fact does play itself out when something bad happens to you. When you endure trouble or difficulty you don't necessarily, you, you wouldn't look at it as an opportunity for your faith to be tested so that you could grow. You wouldn't necessarily look at it as uh, the way that the New Testament teaches us to embrace trouble by, by having joy in it, by saying, God is using this thing in my life to teach me more about being patient, to work patience into my life, and let patience have its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, the scriptures say. Okay? So, so, in this process of maturing as followers of Jesus, the reality is that bad things are going to happen to you. But if we hold to a theology that suggests that bad things only happen because of some particular sin, and, I mean, look at the the situations that are mentioned here, this issue of the Galileans and Pilate mingling their blood with the sacrifices, and then we'll get to the other one about the the tower in Siloam collapsing and killing 18 people. Um, uh, 
we won't see, I, I think, we at least will have difficulty seeing God's sovereignty over these things. And at once, it would lead us to a belief that is, uh, I, I think for lack of a better term, very selfish. Um, um, it's very self-centered, right? It's self-focused. When we have, in the midst of, no matter what situation we're in, the opportunity to be others-centered, to think about others, to serve them, even, even in our own suffering, even in our own trouble, um, this theology can oftentimes lead us to become very inward-focused and self-focused, uh, thinking more of ourselves than of others, uh, which is certainly not um, uh, the focus of the New Testament in the way that we are to be using our minds. So, um, Jesus answers the idea directly. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's probably not what they wanted to hear, right? It's, it's not like Jesus is saying, no, 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 bad things just happen to people sometimes. Don't worry about it. He's saying the reality is you're all going to, to perish. Now, uh, I could say in a very general sense, this is true about everyone, right? You're just going to die. Um, uh, there is a, uh, a particular event, uh, catching away uh, on the translation of believers immediately to be with the Lord. Uh, something that Paul talks about in a couple of places. Um, so if you're not, if you don't happen to be part of that, whenever that event occurs, then you're going to die. Your body is going to die. So in a very broad, general sense, we could say that about everyone. Okay. Um, I want to suggest to you that in the context of Luke, of the story that Luke is telling us, um, I want to suggest to you that this is a very direct statement about what's going to happen to these Jewish people if they do not trust him. The nation is going to be judged. Jesus is repeating this idea over and over and over again. <clears throat> I tell you no, but unless you repent, repentance is a change of mind. Unless you change your mind, you're all going to perish. It wasn't that those Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with the sacrifice, not that they were worse than other Galileans, you're all messed up. It's kind of the idea, right? You're all going to you all perish unless you change your mind, unless you repent. Or those 18, verse 4 says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them a little bit. This is a little bit outside of the city of Jerusalem, this tower in Siloam. Um, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is just laying it out here for, for his Jewish audience. Judgment is coming for the nation of Israel. Unless they repent, they will all likewise perish. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree in planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none then he said to the keeper of his vineyard look for three years <coughs> excuse me sorry <coughs> look for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none <coughs> cut it down why does it use up the ground 
But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. Now who do you think this is talking about? Remember Jesus is talking to Jesus is talking to his Jewish audience here. Who was it that Jesus was doing ministry to and speaking with for three years? The nation of Israel, okay? God had planted Israel as a tree of blessing for all the nations. And he came seeking fruit on it and found them. <laughs> and he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Common, a common illustration of Israel among the prophets is, of that, that is, is as that of a fig tree. You find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also. And by the way, uh, about this particular thing, not only did was it left alone this year, it was left alone for the next 40 years, <laughs> and then uh, and then judgment came very severely on the nation, and, and, and they were spread throughout uh, the empire, and then other places as well, of course. Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it, if it bears fruit well, but if not after that, you can cut it down. I think that, if nothing else... Jesus saying this is a reminder of how incredibly merciful God is. Like, he could have just sent judgment a year after Jesus was rejected and crucified, but he did not. Forty years later, came. More time they were given. God is incredibly patient with us, waiting. Uh, more than you can imagine, he is patient with you, giving you opportunity to return to him, opportunity to come to him. I think that it's important for me to remember that as a follower of Jesus, when I have sinned, how vital it is for me to be able to go to the Lord and to confess my sin. And to go to those to whom I have sinned against and to confess my sin. Now, verse 10 says this. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on Shabbat, on Sabbath day. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. I want to make sure you understand that this particular problem that she had for 18 years was in fact related to some particular spiritual demonic influence. Okay? There was a spirit afflicting her, causing her to be bent over for 18 years. 18 years years once more let me remind you not all of our physical afflictions are the result of spiritual demonic forces in this way some may be and because of what Jesus teaches I cannot cast out that idea outright but I also do know that living in this fallen world <laughs> Um, <clears throat> that is no longer good as God had originally created it to be results in uh, all sorts of things all sorts of problems and decay and trouble uh, even to our bodies uh, which many of us as we get older are becoming more and more aware <laughs> this situation was a particular problem, a spiritual issue. 
when he saw her, he called her to him, and he said to her, Woman, you are loose from your infirmity. I mean, this is so direct. It's so particular. He saw her. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Important to remember that. He, there was a woman there who had the spirit of infirmity. She was bent over. She couldn't raise herself up. And so Jesus, this is, she doesn't even ask, at least not that we have record of. If she did, there's no record of that. But Jesus sees her, and this situation presents itself, so Jesus uses this again. He's regularly offending the religious leaders in Israel about their Sabbath practices. (laughs) When Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath day. What's the point of the Sabbath day? Can we be healed on it? Healed on it. (laughs) So um, this is not the only time that Jesus, Jesus was criticized for healing on the Sabbath day. Uh, for doing some particular thing that was viewed as work on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. Uh, but this hard-hearted attitude of looking at this situation, and put yourself there and think about this, this woman who has been afflicted for 18 years, and now Jesus heals her, and the leaders, the spiritual leaders, are like, no, 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 this can't happen. You can't be doing this on Shabbat. He healed her. <laughs> But they cared more about keeping their Shabbat traditions than they cared about having about the mercy that was shown to this woman. About the gift that she was given of healing. Oh, there's such a warning here about our traditions. About the things that we just do because we do them. We've come to view them as right because we've always done it that way. even when it causes people to fall through the cracks, even when it results in people uh, sometimes even purposefully being hurt (laughs) so that we can continue in our traditions. When it involves us refusing to show mercy, be patient, or have grace with people because they didn't do it the way that we always have done it. There are a multitude of ways this this idea has worked itself out throughout church buildings throughout the world. And not only those, but in other places as well. But let's talk about where we are. Because judgment begins in the house of God. Therefore, come uh, be healed on those other days, not on Shabbat. <laughs> not on the Sabbath day. Can you, I can't even imagine <laughs> somebody saying that. <laughs> And the Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, right? Pretender, somebody playing a role. Different on the outside than you are on the inside. Hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, lose his ox or donkey when, from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years. Um, also, Recognizing this idea that spiritual forces can affect physical bodies. 
in one way or another, whether or not we call this possession or what else we might call it. Um, Paul talked about a messenger of Satan that afflicted him, sent to buffet him. It's important to remember the word messenger is the word angel. What exactly did that look like? <laughs> right? Paul talked about having some sort of affliction with his eyes even after uh, that first blindness happened to him. And talked, he wrote about it on a couple of occasions. Um, Does not each one of you on the Sabbath lose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on Shabbat. There's nothing wrong with this. In fact, this is glorious. This is wonderful. Especially if you're her. <laughs> right? I mean, of all the people, of all the people in this particular situation, imagine if you're her. Like, this is wonderful. You, you've now been healed of this thing that you've been living with for 18 years. <sighs> when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the multitudes rejoice for all the glorious things that were done by him. His adversaries are put to shame. I think because it seems to me that everybody hearing this would have been like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. Like, we do help our animals on the Sabbath day. <laughs> like, we make sure they get food. We make sure they get water. That's work. We make sure they're taken care of. How come this woman can't be taken care of on the Sabbath day? It makes no sense, right? put to shame and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? What's the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. These two, this couplet of parables, go together making one point. The couplet, this couplet of parables related to the kingdom of God tells us a particular overall point. What's the kingdom of God like? Jesus begins to say. It's like something that starts off really, really tiny and then grows. Whatever else we might try to find in these parables and add to it, I think is dangerous. Often the parables are used to illustrate one specific point. Sometimes we try to break them up into smaller things, into uh, clauses, and try to make each particular clause mean some specific thing. I just want to remind you that that's dangerous, and in some of the parables leads us to false theology, to bad theology about God. Right? So, I want to remind you of that. Uh, But... A um, couple of things I want to mention here. There is this statement that's used about Jesus that says uh, after the resurrection that he shall rule or he shall reign until all enemies are put under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated is death. There is this reality, this statement about God's kingdom, that God's kingdom begins tiny. It begins with these, with Jesus and these twelve. Oh, well, one of them gets replaced. You guys know <laughs> Replace that guy. Right? Uh, Judas uh, gets replaced with, with Matthias um, uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts. Okay. Um, 
But this point still stands about God's kingdom starting off the tiny thing that it is with this tiny little seed or like a tiny little piece of leaven that you put in or, or yeast that you put in in measures of meal into wheat and then it expands it grows it gets bigger from there so while what was happening in Jesus' ministry and in Jesus' life might have appeared at the moment to be small or insignificant it in fact was not and you and I 2,000 years later can attest to the fact that what he began has well frankly changed the world right even even in a, a very practical historical sense changed the world um, the promise that's been given is that there is a culmination of this where he takes full control over everything there's a culmination of that in the fullness of the kingdom okay that is something that is spoken of repeatedly in the rest of the writings of the New Testament the looking forward to that reality where the last enemy to be defeated is death can you imagine what it will be like when death is gone when death is gone Verse 22, and he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Remember, he had set his face uh, to go to Jerusalem. He is headed that direction again here. He went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying um, toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Nobody wants to hear this. Are there few who are saved? Oh, lots of, lots of. If we were to consider statistics, I'll let you look them up on your own. There are tons out there of the people who believe, who, who claim to be Christians, who believe they're part of the kingdom, not only not only now, but uh, or in the United States, but in other places. Um, it's a lot of people, right? It's a whole lot of people. It's a lot. There's a lot of people. A lot of people in America. I don't think Jesus was wrong, though. Lord, are there few who are saved? Are there only a few? He said to him, strive to enter through the narrow gate. His response here is, by the way, one of action. One that immediately puts the emphasis on you. The question is, are there only a few people who are saved? Jesus' response is, here's what you need to do. His response is one of you being active. Of you doing something. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will, will seek to enter and will not be able. These are similar things to what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I reference that um, to you for additional uh, content related to this idea. Uh, narrow way, narrow gate versus a broad way or wide gate. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And you will answer and say to you, I, I don't know you where you're from. And they'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. 
he'll say, I, I tell you, I don't know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. A similar phrase to the one I used in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we do all of these wonderful things in your name? Can we cast out demons and do miracles and other things? And Jesus' reply in that passage is, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I don't know you. I never knew you. They will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those are the fathers of Israel, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out, who do you think this would be? It's so important that we keep this in its context. How do you think these Jewish people would, would hear this? When they see their fathers, the great fathers of Israel, uh, of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they see them in God's kingdom with the prophets, whom Israel continually rejected. Jesus had already talked about that. They killed the prophets over and over and over again, right? They rejected them and killed them. When they see them in the kingdom and yourselves thrust out, right? A commonly held belief was that because they were born descendants of Abraham, that they were automatically going to be in the kingdom. And Jesus is shattering that heritability of the kingdom idea, (laughs) okay? And I think it's one that we have to shatter here in the United States of America as well. Because there are many people who just assume that because they were a a descendant or a a child of somebody who was a Christian or went to church or is Catholic or or, or that they were baptized as a baby or whatever, that that automatically means they're part of God's kingdom. And it just isn't true. So Jesus' response is one immediately. It says, you strive, you find, find a way. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. See, what will happen is there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are those who will be first. Or, sorry, there are, there are last who will be first. And there are first who will be last. This idea of this switching around of what is viewed as important or central or first. The first are going to be last. And the last first in God's kingdom. What exactly does that mean? I'll know. Other than that, uh, the idea seems to be that those to whom we give such prestige or prominence, sometimes here, there, they're going to be last. And those whom we give little prestige or prominence or honor to, there in God's kingdom, there they'll be first. If I embrace that idea, then maybe I can serve God faithfully in little things. Maybe I can, you know, cook, help someone vacuum the floor, pick up trash, just do things that nobody will say thank you for most of the time. You know, help, uh, help organize things, help, help just serve. Even if nobody sees, even if nobody gives me any gratitude, because they are in the kingdom the last will be first, and the first last. On that very day, some, verse 31, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus was commonly viewed as a rabbi. And while he was being rejected uh, by the nation itself, there were certainly uh, a couple of Pharisees 
uh, who were sympathetic to Jesus. Um, um, so, uh, so this warning comes to Jesus. Get out and depart from there, for Herod wants to kill you. Uh, Herod was the one in charge of the upper area in Israel at the time. And he said to them, go, tell that fox. <laughs> like the way Jesus talks about politicians. <laughs> go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, tomorrow, and the third day I'll be perfected. Remember the word, this idea of being perfected means uh, it means that something will be brought to its completion. It will be completed or finished. Okay? Um, so Jesus is like, I'm going to do this. I'm going uh, to uh, uh, cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I'll be uh, perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, regardless of what Herod tries to do. Is kind of what he seems to be saying here. Um, he's not worried about these Pharisees coming and saying, Oh, you better get out of here now because Herod wants to kill you. He's like, I just... I have stuff I need to do. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I'm not worried about it. In fact, he's going to die. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 34. He's accepted this idea. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This prophecy from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen, a hen gathers her brood on her wings, but you were not willing. It's important for me that you recognize the historicity of what's happening here. Israel is in the midst of rejecting the anointed one, the one sent by God to redeem them. And while while as a whole the nation rejects him, there are in fact a few who are saved. There is a remnant who believe. But I want you to hear in Jesus' words the heart, this, this heart, how often I wanted to gather you. Imagine God saying this to you, to people, to you, you who were lost in your sin, Jesus saying to you, God saying, I, I want you to, to be mine. How often I wanted to gather you under, my, under my, my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you didn't want to. You weren't willing. And now judgment is pronounced. Verse 35, see, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you won't see me until this happens. Until you say, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord. This is important for a couple of reasons. One is that I want you to make sure you're hearing the voice of God. If you, if you haven't trusted him, today is the day of salvation. <laughs> you will hear his voice. Change your mind. Believe on him whom God has sent. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and raised from the dead. He's alive now, ready to rescue anyone who will trust him. Who will cry out to him, call to him, and ask him for forgiveness. 
He will rescue us and he will give his Holy Spirit to us. That's certainly first and foremost. Secondly, uh, I think is the reality that this then uh, reminds me that I, I have an important role to play or I can have an important role to play in the lives of the people around me because the same thing is true for them, right? That they too can be rescued. <laughs> so I have an opportunity to be active in sharing the message of the cross, of the resurrection of Jesus uh, with the community of people in, um, that I'm uh, living with and around. Uh, so I'm reminded of that. Uh, thirdly, I still believe that God has a particular plan for Israel. I, I don't know how all of that works out with the, the physical land and with the tension over there right now, and I, I don't I don't um, want to suggest to you that I have all of this figured out in my brain. I don't. Uh, but what I do believe is that God, in fact, has made promises uh, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he will, in fact, keep the promises that he has made because he has always done so. Um, Your house is left to you desolate. Assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and I think that um, Paul believed that day would come eventually. And I do too. He summarizes it in Romans chapter 11. I'm not going to read that whole passage, but I want to commend to you a thorough reading of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because Paul talks about the idea of Israel as a nation over against what we might refer to as spiritual Israel, that is, Jewish people who believe him, who believe the Messiah, versus those who are physically just part of the nation of Israel. Okay? But in the end, near the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Gentiles are non-Jewish people, okay, there's a particular reference to that idea of the work that God is doing among the nations, bringing them into his kingdom so that his kingdom is made up of a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. I do want to read to you a couple of things that lend themselves to this idea that I've been trying to communicate to you. I hope I've done an okay job, but I want you to wrap your minds around this idea of the judgment of the nation of Israel and of how of Jesus' ministry, uh, while he's bringing the kingdom and presenting it to them, they are rejecting the kingdom. Okay, I want to read to you, uh, firstly, I have two passages, at least two, <laughs> that I want to read. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try not to comment a whole lot. I just want to read them to you uh, because I want your mind, I want you guys to be thinking about them. Um, the first one is uh, Stephen. Stephen. Uh, and um, so here's what Acts chapter 6 says um, uh, about Stephen. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what's called the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, they were Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. They were disputing with Stephen, and there were, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus, 
Jesus, bleh, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. He, in fact, did say that they were going to be judged. <laughs> One stone will not be left upon another, he told them. Um, but, uh, regardless, and all uh, who sat in the council looking steadfastly uh, at him saw his face as the face of an angel. They're looking, all the people in the council now are looking at Stephen, and they were, they were seeing his face like it was an angel, like this messenger, this holy messenger. Then, verse 7, the high priest said, Are these things so? Now, Listen, guys, Acts 7. Attention, please. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, He promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants should dwell, would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who didn't know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his, his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they didn't understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and he tried to, re- tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, 
for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a judge, a deliverer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to, to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Do you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had a tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Uh, what house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the excuse me, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The stoning of Stephen is a reminder. His entire sermon there is about how throughout all of these years, Israel is rejecting the work that God is doing. God had called them. God even sent Moses to be a judge and deliverer whom they rejected in the same way. They were rejecting the Messiah, the one that Moses had prophesied uh, would come um, in the same way. Um... I'm not going to read this whole section, but in Acts 13, um, 
Paul stands up in verse 16, Acts chapter 13, verse 16. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. Um, And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Yeshua, Jesus. After John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, uh, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all, all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who um, came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you good news, glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Shabbat, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Those two passages, those two sermons, really, um, 
set up for us this idea of the nation of Israel rejecting their Messiah and of the message of God's kingdom then being brought to all of the nations, to the Gentiles. If you read that passage in Romans 9, 10, 11, I encourage you to do that. It talks about God's absolute sovereignty over everything and of God's working through the nation of Israel, even in their rejection of his Messiah. Um, But then of God's fulfillment, of God's uh, completing, keeping the promises that he has made uh, to uh, his people. Because God is keeping his promises to them, here's the main point of what I want to say. He'll keep his promises to you. Do not fear, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Don't flow along with what the majority of the world is doing. Yes, God has called a remnant out. Out from the world to trust Him. To be His own special people. Who's in and who's out? Let God figure that out. You strive to enter through the narrow. God will deal with everyone else. You and I have the opportunity to do the best that we can to just make known the truth and to trust that as uh, Paul preached, those who had been, and as Luke wrote, those who had been appointed to eternal life were saved. (laughs) Were rescued. They believed. So... I want you to remember that this is God's work. Absolutely. From beginning to end. Father, thank you for your patient love toward me, toward us. Father, help us to be careful about how we view catastrophic events. Correct our false theologies, our false beliefs about you and about your kingdom. But I can't, I can't really read these passages without being fully aware of the fact that there is real judgment. There is truly weeping and gnashing of teeth. is in you, God. Because while we are aware of how much we humans have devastated each other, we must be aware of the fact that, that we deserve judgment. But you've made a way for us to be rescued, to be brought into your kingdom kingdom of love, of joy, of peace, of righteousness. Father, we pray that you would continue to change our minds, that we think on, on you and on the things of your kingdom more than on other things. 
And I also pray that you would help us to be a helpful influence in the lives of our families, our extended families, our parents and cousins and aunts and uncles, grandparents, whoever, and children and nieces and nephews. And that we'd also be an influence in the lives of our friends, the ones we grew up with, who don't know you. We're not a part of this great salvation that you're working because we we want so many, we want so many to be to to be part of your kingdom. Help us to be faithful to you, Lord. To you first. It's by you that we exist. It's by you that we continue to exist. So Father, help us to humble ourselves. To be people who pray, who commune with you, Father. And then, and then, as we hear your, your voice in the scriptures, Lord, teach us to be people who trust you, who just believe what you have said. And I confess that sometimes it's hard because I find I have found so many people who don't believe you, and, and sometimes sometimes that's hard. It's hard. But you are good, Father. <laughs> In your way, your way is always right and true. Father, would you bless your people, I pray, and make us to be um, standing on a firm foundation that is uh, your word, <laughs> what you have said. And, and more than that, it's you, Lord, you are the firm foundation. Help us not to be anxious, Lord. Help us to trust you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.